Hello and welcome. This is another episode of Inside Briefing, a special episode. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm delighted to have with me Jacob Rees-Mogg, leader of the House of Commons, who's actually speaking to us from his office in the Commons. Is that right? Yeah, yes, that's right. Observing careful social distancing, you'll be glad to know. Excellent. Well, a very warm welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. We are going to discuss how Parliament is working in the lockdown and some of the new steps that have been taken and whether that is really adequate and whether there could be some interesting innovations. So let's um, let's kick off. And before Parliament rose early, and as the government began to ramp up its warnings about the spread of coronavirus, plenty of people were commenting on how packed the Commons chamber was at that point, even as some MPs were falling ill. And then, of course, we had uh, members of the Cabinet and indeed the Prime Minister falling very, very seriously ill. Was there a danger in a mixed message that MPs were sending out to the nation? Uh, Yes, to some extent there was, that the nation was being told to observe social distancing. Um, It was also being told to carry on with essential work, and it seems to me that the work of the Commons uh, is essential, Uh, but that being so close together was uh, muddying the waters. It was making things less clear than we would have liked them to be. Uh, That was one of the reasons we rose early, but that we had to come back that short of a prorogation, which I'm not sure anybody wanted, uh, we had to come back on the 21st of April. That was simply the way our systems operated. And let's talk about the process of Parliament setting up the, the virtual Parliament that we have now of, of most MPs, um, you know, working uh, remotely, uh, communicating with the the Chamber and the House of Commons remotely. Um, was there a lot of debate about how that was going to happen? Well, the main debate really was about what was technically possible. The week before we rose for the Easter recess, there was considerable nervousness about whether anything was technically possible uh, and whether we might not to have, have to meet uh, physically and then adjourn for an extended period. And the House authorities worked incredibly hard uh, over Easter to provide a solution which has now been extended. So we started just with two hours uh, of scrutiny and now we've got four hours for legislation as well on the three days we're going to sit. Um, so it was a debate about how you do it rather than whether you're going to do it. Most people accepted that Parliament needed to come back in some form. And how do you think it's going? It's going reasonably well. Um, and I say that obviously carefully because I've just done business questions and my shadow, uh, Valerie Vaz, was a little bit difficult to hear during some of the sessions. So the technology doesn't always work perfectly, but everybody else involved I could hear clearly. Uh, There are always risks of things going down, but we are managing both to have scrutiny and to get the legislative program going. The drawback is that you can't have interventions, you're not getting the cut and thrust of debate that you're normally getting, and you're not getting the things that go on around the chamber that are so important to backbenchers. Uh, obviously, there's been a lot of um, um, you know chat about where, how it's gone so far, and and sometimes you can't see the top of an MP's head or something, or indeed hear, hear them. But, but mainly, kind of stylistic comment, if you like. I'd, I'd like to pick up on the point you were just talking about about scrutiny, though, um, because this is crucial, it seems to me, about whether Parliament, as it is now, can really scrutinise legislation going through and give it the proper tugging around and challenge that it that it needs. Um. Yes, uh, and obviously scrutiny comes into different parts. So the scrutiny of questioning in a crisis is, I think, actually very helpful to the government. 
because MPs are reporting on their experience in their constituencies as to how policies are affecting individuals. And it helps the government improve the systems. And I think you see that with the questioning that you've been getting and the tweaks to um, programs that the government's introduced that come through. So I think that bit of scrutiny is working well. The issue with scrutiny of legislation is, I think, more difficult because that scrutiny is more debate scrutiny rather than point scrutiny. And can the uh, minister defend the position against a House that may be hostile and may be trying to uh, interrupt the flow of the minister's thought? Doing it in a virtual sense, those obstacles are removed to some extent. And and so it, it doesn't always get the challenge that it might. This is something we've been writing about at, at the IFG, um, and we do a lot of work, as you know, on, on scrutiny um, and the different aspects of that. Um, is there anything that could be done to take it a notch further? We've gone a long way in a short time with a technology that was previously untested. I'd be cautious about taking it further too rapidly until you're confident that what you've already got is working. But I think one thing that makes it more of a debate and less of a series of speeches is if you could have interventions. But that, I think, is quite hard to do in a virtual sense. Let's turn it round. Is there anything you'd love to keep about the present setup? There's been a lot of talk about it being temporary, but some of these are innovations which are potentially very exciting. I have to be very careful about that because there's been a quite extraordinary consensus in getting all of this done across the House including people who never wanted to see much reform to our procedures at all, and they've accepted it on the basis that it's temporary. If they were to think that it was being done on a permanent basis or was opening the door to permanent changes, I think they might have been less willing to go along with it. So I'd be fairly limited in what I would look at for the longer term, but I think some of the changes involving select committees and allowing them to operate remotely, where debate is less important than the answers to questions, may be things that people will want to look at in future. And one of the things, obviously, that people talk about in that context is, is digital voting, whether MPs might be able to vote remotely, something that the House has, has really not rushed to embrace at all in, in the past. But you get some MPs who say, look, I don't want a career as a minister uh, or indeed as a head of a committee or anything. I really want to be a constituency MP and I would love it. And my constituency is a long way from London. I would love it if I could simply spend more time there and vote remotely and dedicate myself to constituency work. Do, do you think uh, that there's going to be much more pressure for looking at digital voting? I think any MP who said what you've just said is making not a great argument for digital voting because they're basically saying that they don't want to be involved in parliament. And the whole idea of parliament is that individuals come together from across the country to help make laws for the benefit of the whole country uh, rather than being um, ambassadors for their constituency to the rest of the country. I, I think the idea that MPs just don't want to turn up in Westminster, therefore they should be allowed to vote digital, digitally, undermines the whole basis of how parliament operates. So I wouldn't... Well, I, I... I, I can see the force of that. On the other hand, you know, we are a long, thin country uh, with the parliament more or less at one end of it. And it is much more time consuming for some MPs to get there than others. So there is a practical uh, force to that, not just a point of principle. I think it's fairly limited, actually. If you compare it to what um, congressmen do and senators do in the United States, 
it's not really that hard to get down, even from the furthest parts of the United Kingdom. And if people don't want to be MPs, they're, they're just forcing them to stand for Parliament. And I think you can have excellent constituency MPs who play an active role uh, in the House of Commons as well. And actually, Jim Shannon from uh, Ulster is an example, incredibly active in the House of Commons, but also incredibly active locally in his, his constituency. And so I, I, I think the, the, the argument for digital voting isn't one about MPs not coming to Westminster because they need to come to Westminster to be involved in a parliament. And that's one of the things we lose by having a digital parliament. Um, the, the other reason for being cautious about digital voting is that the division lobbies are actually very useful, particularly to backbench MPs, because they are an opportunity to speak to ministers and to fellow MPs, because very often as you're wandering through the division lobby, you find you're not the only person who's concerned about something or has had something happen to a constituent that you don't think is quite right. And that reinforces your ability to go to a minister, catch a minister in the lobby and say, when will this be put right? So I think the physical presence in a lobby benefits Parliament. We uh, at the IFG and many others were looking at these kind of questions even before the coronavirus crisis because of the imminence are maybe not quite so intimate, but restoration of the Palace of Westminster and uh, both houses having to decant either together or, uh, or or separately. Do you think that the innovations we've seen have made it actually cheaper and easier to do that? I think that's a very interesting question, um, that do you need a complete reconfigured, reconstructed chamber uh, as part of R&R if you can do it digitally and it being done digitally has worked as a temporary measure. I think it, it 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 alters the debate. It raises an interesting question. I think it's too early to be certain whether it determines the debate. If we coming more back to the present and looking at the business coming before the House, will the government make statements to Parliament? explaining the basis of any decisions taken in these, these reviews of the lockdown and make provision for regular renewal of these regulations? It will have to, uh, that uh, the temporary measures allow for an hour of either statements or of urgent questions every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So if the government doesn't bring forward statements explaining what's happening, then the Speaker will allow urgent questions. So that's one of the really important bits of having the virtual parliament is that any changes in the lockdown, any developments will have to be brought to parliament. And uh, I, I know um, I'm a member of the government, but as leader of the House, I'm very concerned to defend the rights of the House of Commons. And it's very important that such statements are made to us. Before the recess, the government used the emergency procedure and then sought parliament's approval retrospectively. Should we expect that again or is it going to ask parliament's approval of these regulations prospectively? Well, it had to get the legislation through before it could do anything. Yes. So Parliament crucially accepted it, and these laws will have to be renewed on a six-monthly basis. So there's a limit to what the government can do. There are then the forms of regulation that can be put down. Most of them are negative statutory instruments. There are one or two that are affirmative. And the ones that have been made affirmative are coming to the House uh, next week to be determined by the House. So the House will always get a say on the affirmative um, statutory instrument. 
You've said the government intends to press on with its programme of primary legislation. Does anything that we've been discussing, um, for example, the, 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 the greater difficulty of, of scrutiny and challenge, does that affect um, this programme at all? It's a very interesting question and, and one that we've been discussing. Does it make backbench uh, rebellion or independence of mind, depending on which way you want to put it, uh, easier or harder? And I don't actually know the answer, that if you're sitting 150 miles away from Palace of Westminster with no whip coming to give you a nice cup of coffee or other drink, whatever kind, and to encourage you to support the government, do you find it easier to sit there and say, well, I don't like this, I'm voting against it? Or do you need the support of other like-minded colleagues to give you the courage to vote against the government line? And I don't know whether remoteness makes it easier or harder for the government whips to uh, win their business. Though I would say there is some nervousness in the whips office uh, about how remote voting will work. And so it's possible that what you lose in scrutiny, you gain in people feeling independent minded because of their remoteness from the structures that have made party politics in the UK so disciplined. Uh, interesting. Um, so you don't have any. Uh, it's an interesting point. I hadn't um, thought of that. But do you have any concerns then about the legitimacy of legislation passed during this period? It, it sounds, uh, from what you've just said, that no, the, the arguments on both sides of whether uh, it, the, the scrutiny is increased or or undermined. Oh, the, the um, legislation is unquestionably legitimate. I don't have any concerns about that, and I wouldn't have been encouraging and pushing for this system if I'd had concerns. Uh, I think not carrying on would have been the thing that lacked democratic legitimacy because, you know, the government has a comfortable majority, it has a mandate, and to throw up its hands and say, well, we can't find solutions and therefore we're ignoring our mandate would, I think, be an abdication of their democratic responsibility. There are there any implications for the Lords and how legislation is passed through the Lords um, of, of this new world in which uh, they're not meeting in person? I mean, it's, the Lords has particular longer-term issues because of its demographic. Um, and the Lords is starting... You mean for, they're older? They're, they're older. That, that's, that's right. Uh, and therefore, however this is likely to end, the social distancing in the Lords is likely to be stricter than it will have to be in the, in the House of Commons, ultimately. But in terms of legislation, the Lords has some advantages, some disadvantages. It doesn't routinely vote on second reading, so it can get through quite a lot of its early business in an uncontentious way and in an almost normal way. But it has lots of votes uh, on committee stage and report stage. And so it's going to be a question for them as how do they manage to do that without a government majority to steer things in a particular direction. And so I think it is harder mm. harder for the Lords than it is for the Commons. Mm. Let's come down to the, the committee point. Um, and one um, point that it may sound very technical um, to those outside Westminster, but has aroused a certain amount of heat uh, within what we still must call Westminster, which is uh, the, the government's insisting that Bernard Jenkin was, is chair of the Liaison Committee, which calls the, the Prime Minister to account, and elected chairs, um, uh, were, were, which 
were introduced in, in 2010, the people who are now elected chairs have made clear that they're rather unhappy with this break from the way things have been done for the past decade and, uh, and thought that the government was not going to parachute in, um, a phrase that's been used, its own choice of chair, uh, and yet that has happened. Uh, it depends how you look at it. It seems to me that the electorate is being widened from um, the chairman of the committees to the whole house. If the whole house doesn't want to have uh, Sir Bernard as um, the chairman of the liaison committee, it won't have him. And that's very much in line with the right committee's recommendations that the whole house should be involved and able to vote on appointments rather than it being done by narrower groups. So uh, I, I d don't think the problem is as great as its opponents are suggesting. Let me ask you one final thought. Uh, Parliament's adjusted to the coronavirus age, as we've just been discussing. Will party conferences have to do the same? That is a very, very good question. Uh, I was discussing that internally as to how the party conference uh, would operate. I have a feeling there might be slightly fewer selfies than there were at the last party conference. <laughs> <laughs> so it might be slightly quieter walking about. But who knows where we will be in, in October? Um, I, but the way the way you're phrasing that implies that you think there's still a chance they will go ahead. Well, I, I honestly don't know. It's some time off, and I, I don't know how this virus will evolve and develop. And uh, for, for once, I'm stumped, I'm afraid to say. So although we're missing the cricket season, you have managed to stump me, because I really don't know where we will be in, in October and what plans should or shouldn't be made for party conferences. Should people book their hotel rooms at this stage? Uh, I, I don't know. I wouldn't like to advise. Yes, as you said, a very, very good question without an answer at the moment. But I think that's perfectly fair given the amount of uncertainty that we're dealing with at the moment. Jacob Rees-Mogg, thank you very much indeed for thank, talking to us. No, thank you very moment. much. It's been an absolute pleasure. pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>